If there was a duel between the Liberty making shots and JD and the straight shots playing, I would put all of my money on the Liberty for pure entertainment because James Dolan wears a fedora when he plays in his band. Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where we believe in eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for staring at Sue Bird's lovely smile. I'm Haley O'Shaughnessy. And I'm Jordan Liggins. I'm so excited about our story that we have today. We have Lindsay Gibbs, an amazing spinfluencer. She has a newsletter called Power Plays, and she's a co-host of Burn It All Down. And we are going to talk about something that we both have experience with, unions. The WNBA's union is probably the best in sports. I don't think that's out of bounds to say. Well, and it seems like the W players have finally gotten the recognition they deserve over the past couple of years for being the ones who led the charge in a couple of ways, most notably with an athlete's right to speak on what they want to speak on and to protest. And I'm curious to see how much of that goes back to the union. Also, yes, you and I were working at a company that went through the unionization process and woo, <laughs> we saw firsthand like the sheer hours poured into organizing and bargaining. And it didn't only take labor to unionize. It takes a lot of nerve. It can be a super scary thing. And I am forever in awe of bargaining committees everywhere after that. Also, the W is a much bigger workplace. So I would imagine that their fight in particular was and is tough. Yeah. So I, I can't wait to hear how they managed to do this, how they managed to build one of the best unions in sports. After the break, Lindsay Gibbs. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Lindsay. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, WNBA season is back. Are you excited? I'm so excited. It was way too long of a break. I missed my people, my friends. I'm so glad they're back, too. This like entire season has been great to reflect on so far because it's such a special year for the W, the 25th anniversary. There's been so much talk about how far the league has come and how it got started. And David Stern and the NBA get a lot of credit for that in these conversations. But I want to suggest a different perspective. One that, you know, centers the players a bit more. So many women's leagues have been launched over the years, and this is the only professional one in North America that's made it to a quarter century. So I want to dive into the things that have kept the league alive and powered it. I want to talk about the WNBA Players Association. It's amazing that the WNBA's union got started so quickly because there was a time that people didn't think the WNBA was going to last. Let's go. You know, the union was formed startlingly early in the WNBA's history, and none of the uh, powers that be, the David Stearns, the NBA, wanted them to organize in this way. Over the years, it has not only just sustained the league and these players, but it's now the main driving force behind 
the biggest successes of the league, the social activism, this new CBA, which is so innovative and so creative. And so I thought that we'd look at this organization that against all odds has become, I think, the most powerful union in sports and maybe just one of the most powerful entities in sports, period. When the WNBA launched, I was finishing up law school, actually. That's Cookies Washington, the current associate head coach at Notre Dame. Cookies played for the Fighting Irish from 1989 to 1993. When she graduated, there was no professional women's league in the United States. But then the WNBA launched. Well, not quite. Before there was a WNBA, there was the American Basketball League. While Stern and co. were trying to get the WNBA off the ground in the summer of 97, the upstart ABL swooped in and launched in the fall of 1996 and signed most of Team USA in the process. When the ABL was having tryouts, open tryouts for anybody who wanted to jump into the league and a bunch of my law school buddies, you know, like, you should try out, you should try out. I was like, no, 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 I'm going to be a lawyer. Her classmates had seen her play in pickup games and they were persistent. They actually uh, paid the entry fee for me to try out for the ABL. So they kind of pressured me into going. They were like, well, we already paid it. So and signed you up. So you got to go. Cookies impressed at tryouts and was drafted to the Portland Power. Phenomenal name, by the way, and played there in the 97-98 ABL season. At first, she chose to go to the ABL because the pay in the WNBA was so low. The initial, the very first season, the minimum salary was $5,000, and that was your working conditions. So that was it. Okay. <laughs> what? I know. I mean, that was for players on the developmental squad. Some players made more, of course, but still, it wasn't great. The second season, I think the minimum salaries went up to $15,000. But again, that was it. There's no year-round insurance. There's no maternity leave. There's no 401k or retirement benefits. A lot of the things when you think about working conditions that we take for granted as employees for most uh, companies, none of that existed. So Jordan, the WNBA was incredibly popular when it launched. It had some of the biggest names in the sport, Cheryl Swoops, Lisa Leslie, Rebecca Lobo. Cookies didn't feel confident about ABL's business plan. So in 1998, she signed with the New York Liberty. So I feel like I heard that from a lot of players at the time that they did not have confidence in the ABL. Did it fold? Is that why she went to the Liberty? Well, she went a little bit before it folded. But basically, yeah, it couldn't compete with like the TV deals and the sponsors that the NBA was able to attract for the WNBA. So in the fall of 98, it folded very abruptly in the middle of its third season, like right smack dab in the middle. So you have the WNBA that has like two successful seasons in its pocket, but very low pay and basically no benefits. And all of a sudden it's about to absorb all of these huge Team USA Olympic stars from the ABL because all of a sudden they have nowhere to go. And it really set up this huge conundrum that I think anyone who has unionized has felt a little bit, which is, is this too soon? Like, is this too much too soon? Because they've seen this example of a league 
just fold in front of their eyes that maybe tried to pay the players too much too soon and it didn't work out. But at the same time, they're realizing how fragile this all is and they're wanting some security, right? They want to be able to have a union, to have solidarity, to have an actual seat at the table. Part of the reason that we decided to to unionize in the first place was to make sure the working conditions were such that we were professional, that this was something that we could commit to year round. Because you can't you can't be in the world's best athlete May through Memorial Day through Labor Day. But, you know, you're working at FedEx in the offseason to make ends meet. When the unionization efforts started to really pick up steam, Coquise was immediately at the center. Because I played for the Liberty and I was living in New York, uh, working in a law firm that offseason, I was in New York. So a lot of the players, you know, said, hey, Coquise, you know, can you be one of the people that spearheads this thing? So after any group decides to unionize, they have to decide which organization they're going to unionize with. You need that solidarity, literally, (laughs) with, you know, an established group. So Cookies and the union's executive committee met with a lot of organizations, and ultimately they decided to form their union with the NBA Players Association, which is the NBAPA. The pros of this was that the NBA's Players Association already had an infrastructure in place, and I think more importantly, the NBA Players Association knew how to haggle with David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, who the WNBA players now needed to bargain against. So like when you unionize, you know, you have to come to a collective bargaining agreement with management on the terms of your working conditions. For WNBA players, these are the things like pay and hotels and maternity leave. And it's really hard because management doesn't want to give anything up. And according to Coquise, it was quite the experience. A negotiation with David Stern is tough. No, we're not closer. We have a huge philosophical divide. I don't think I'm going to apologize for the owners wanting to make a profit. That's what capitalism is. He is a tough, tough negotiator, and he's not scared or intimidated easily. Thankfully, the WMBPA had some pretty tough people on their side of the table, too. My name is Pamela Wheeler. I'm the former director of the WNBA Players Association. I currently teach at Columbia and do diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as executive leadership development consulting. That's Pamela Wheeler, the first executive director of the WNBPA. When unions are formed, you not only have the Players Council, but you have someone from the outside leading it. And the players got to interview the person had that position. And Pamela was one of multiple people that Coquise and Co, the executive committee, talked with, and they were really impressed by her. She just really stood out above the other candidates. And she is feisty. The executives of the NBA and WNBA were not exactly thrilled that the union had formed so soon. Classic NBA pushback. I mean, classic pushback from any ownership when a union starts. (laughs) You know, I recall that there was, you know, quite a bit of what management typically does in this situation is campaigning to prevent the players from unionizing because, you know, management understands that collectively the players have much greater leverage than they do individually. So there wasn't a party going on on Fifth Avenue (laughs) during that time. But at that point, there was no turning back. 
With their leadership firmly in place, the players began fighting against the clock to get a CBA in place before the 1999 draft that spring. So we'd have these conference calls. Hello? You know, literally, oh, you know, 100, 150 people calling in from around the world, wanting to get updates on where we were, asking questions. And it would be a great opportunity for us to get feedback from the players on, you know, what issues are important to us? Is it higher salaries that's most important? Is it, you know, how many players in the room when we travel? Is it the amount of per diem we get? You know, what things are most important? And let's start to delineate what's most important and and what we can give on and what, you know, they want 10 player appearances. Is that too many? I love that visual of, all of, you know, the early WNBA players really being able to have a say of this league that they are forming. Yeah, but also it sounds to me just like complete madness. I mean, they're they're overseas. They're on all different time zones. This is way before Zoom. Yes. Literally having to set up this conference call line and having Lisa Leslie press the pound button so she can speak from China or wherever. Like, I don't know. It's a lot. That's amazing. That's just like three-way calls just over and over <laughs> and over just- because there was no Google Meet. But it was still crucial to get all that feedback because they had so many priorities to tackle. So there was no free agency, which we all know is, you know, the holy grail in professional sports. There were no minimum salaries. There were no year-round medical benefits, no maternity benefits, no group licensing, marketing rights. There were some players that were signed to marketing deals, but there were no group marketing rights. There was no uh, discipline guidelines. The league could sort of meet out whatever discipline the league wanted to. And there, were no, there was no revenue sharing. There was no post-retirement plan. <laughs> you know, so there were quite a few things that weren't there. This was so much work. And remember, while most players were on board with the union, there were still a lot of players afraid to push too far and just scared that this league would fold just the way the ABL had before it. But eventually they got there and got the WNBA to agree and sign the first collective bargaining agreement. Uh, What was the most challenging thing to achieve in that first contract? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't just one thing. It It was everything. Of course, the biggest thing was that the players were able to get salary increases. You know, we were able to get minimum salaries up from 15000 to 40000 you know, which is what we felt like that is a livable year-round salary. So our thinking was we want players to say, this is my job. This is what I do. And I can take care of myself and my family off of this salary. They also secured things that it's still astounding that they weren't offered in the first place, such as year-round health insurance dental coverage, maternity leave, those things. You know, just like the very basic things to be a human. And I love that if we were in Europe, we would already have all these things. But of course. Right. But here we expect, you know, employers to provide them and they had to fight really hard to get that to happen. Yeah. But Jordan, guess what Cookies did the second the collective bargaining agreement was ratified? What? Um, Once we unionized and my salary got higher, then I was like, hey, I'm a professional athlete. Um, I'm no longer uh, working as a lawyer. (laughs) 
So WNBA players have been fighting for a long time. I talked to current association leaders, and one thing that became clear is that all the negotiations that came before have been incredibly intense, especially negotiations for the 2003 collective bargaining agreement. A few franchises had folded. The ownership model had recently changed so that WNBA teams could exist independently of NBA teams. Before that, every WNBA team had to be associated with an NBA franchise to exist. The players on their second contract still, you know, wanted to increase salary and get better benefits. They weren't really asking for much, but that's how the league bosses, including David Stern, made it out to be. It got so bad so many times that there are multiple interviews where Stern threatened to shut down the WNBA. Negotiations went down to the last second. So we literally were, I think, maybe five or six hours before the draft was supposed to be televised, and we still didn't have a deal, I believe. Unionizing in any environment is super tense, super stressful. But I honestly can't imagine unionizing as all women as this league that is borderline, you know, could it make it, could it not? All of the spotlight is really on them to make this work. Yeah, and they actually, during this time, got like the National Organization of Women and some feminist organizations to hold some events and drum up some publicity, making this a thing about treating women fairly in the workplace, making it an issue beyond just women's basketball. We come together when we take the streets, when we vote. Women are the single most powerful political force in America. I mean, they really had to fight to get David Stern to respect them and to give them the basics. I asked Pamela if she really believed that Stern and the NBA were going to shut down the league. Yeah, I thought it was possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think we we all thought it was possible. It's a business. You know, at that time, you know, I'm pretty sure there were issues on their side that we were aware of and some that we weren't aware of that dictated that I'm sure there were some NBA owners who didn't want to do it and were prepared to shut the league down. So we, we took that threat very seriously. So it went down to the final hours. Was there like one thing that was holding all of this up? Of course, you know. They wanted more salaries and benefits and things like that, accommodations. But the biggest goal is what Pamela calls her holy grail, free agency, which they didn't have before. So hours before the draft was about to air, the draft that had already been postponed once, I believe, they got free agency. And so that was, to me, still the pinnacle of everything we were able to achieve. So the next collective bargaining agreement came up in 2008, which I don't know if you remember, that was right during the recession. Yeah. Not necessarily ideal timing, but they were able to increase the salary cap, raise the minimum and maximum salaries a bit, reduce the number of core players from two to one. And uh, in the WNBA core player, that's like basically kind of a franchise tag situation. They also were able to get players with five or more years of experience their own hotel rooms on away games. Wow. Thank you so much. Wonderful. (laughs) And then you would hope that was kind of maybe the worst one, but the bargaining situation didn't exactly get better when it was time to negotiate their next collective bargaining agreement in 2014. 
and the 2014 collective bargaining agreement only really achieved minor increases in compensation and player accommodations. But it did have one crucial thing, an opt-out clause. In 2015, after 16 years at the helm, Pamela Wheeler was out. I think in some ways, players felt that progress had stagnated. Wait, so does this mean that it's NECA time? We're super close, I promise. But first, we need to meet someone else. Hi, I'm Terry Carmichael Jackson. I'm the executive director of the Women's National Basketball Players Association, and I'm happy to be here. Back in 1999, when Pamela Coquise and company were ratifying that first collective bargaining agreement, Terry Jackson was actually teaching a class on women in sport at law school. Wait, that's so cute. (laughs) So it seems like she's been preparing her whole life for this. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And get this, not only had she taught a course, her husband is Jaron Jackson, a former NBA player who was active in the NBA Players Association back when he was a player. Okay, power couple. Power couple. So she had spent hours pouring over CBAs with him during like the lockout season and things like that. Wow, ideal date. That is romance. (laughs) If someone does not... Poor hours over CBAs with you. Like, is it love? I don't know. Not anymore. Not anymore. But anyways, like Pamela before her, when Terry saw the opening for an executive director for the WNBA union, she knew she had to have the job and I'll just kill the suspense. She nailed the interviews. She got the job and she started in May of 2016. Now, in the summer of 2016, there was a lot of contention both in the country and in the WNBA itself. People are fed up and they are hurting, taking to the streets tonight all across the country. There are also dozens of arrests in St. Paul, Minnesota after protesters clashed with police over the deadly shooting of Philando Castile last Wednesday. In the background, you have this hugely contentious presidential election. Well, you see them marching and you see them on occasion at least, I've seen it, where they're essentially calling death to the police. Then, on June 12th, Omar Mateen killed 49 people and injured 53 more. We're following breaking news right now in Orange County, where Orlando police have confirmed there's been a shooting in downtown Orlando at the Pulse nightclub. That's Less than a month later, in one 48-hour period, police killed two black men, Alton Sterling in Louisiana and Philando Castile in Minnesota. And videos of both of those incidents went viral, sparking Black Lives Matter protests across the nation. The WNBA was very proactive after the Pulse nightclub shooting, immediately issuing warm-up t-shirts, commemorating the victims, and offering support to the LGBTQ community. But when it came to the murders of Sterling and Castile, the WNBA league office was silent. The players noticed. I'm introduced to the technology WhatsApp chat, and there's this chat group, and I think we must have had it like 70, 80 players, maybe more, on this chat. And they're all talking about what to do, how they're feeling. And 
they're bringing all of their emotions, all of their personal thoughts and suggestions and their desire to act together in mass. That blew me away. You know, as a union leader, that's what you want to see. The first players to make a statement were the Minnesota Lynx. Castile's murder happened in their community. So on July 9th, the four captains, Lindsay Whalen, Simone Augustus, Rebecca Brunson, and Maya Moore, stood at the pregame podium to talk to the press. They wore t-shirts. The words, change starts with us, justice and accountability, were on the front. Castile's name and Sterling's name and the phrase Black Lives Matter were on the back. Together, they delivered this statement. Racial profiling is a problem. Senseless violence is a problem. The, the divide is way too big between our communities and those who have vowed to protect and serve us. Did Terry know that they were going to do any of this? Oh, yes. Not only did I know about it, the league knew about it. The WNBA also knew about the plan for the next day. The New York Liberty all wore shirts that read hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag Dallas Five on the front. On the back, there was a hashtag with a blank line following it. It was to represent the tragic deaths that were yet to come if there wasn't change. But after the Liberties demonstration, the WNBA's tone changed. And then the league just kind of wanted to shut it down. And I said, no, 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 we we can't do that. Like every team needs to have their moment. And we've got a week of games before the Olympic break, allow them to have that moment. And, and that's it. That's all that we, we've done it. That's it. They were so uncomfortable. They were so uncomfortable in this space. The league first issued a memo, not so subtly, reminding all the teams about the pregame dress code, how everyone was supposed to wear league issued warm ups. Yeah, if I remember right, that that did not go over well, like at all. It really did not. I mean, some teams continued to wear black warm-up shirts before games anyways. And then the league actually fined the players for doing so. Terry was on her way into a meeting when the league called her to tell her they were levying the fines. I said, this, this, is, this is a wrong move. This is a huge mistake. So then Terry's in this meeting and her phone starts buzzing. It's nonstop because she's being copied on every single email notifying players and teams about these fines. And everyone is dumbfounded in response. I was absolutely furious and uh, tremendously disappointed. And I thought the league had an opportunity to demonstrate its support of players that were in such a passionate space and had done the work. The WNBA has always been known as progressive and really standing behind the women and when they were outspoken or whatever their opinions may be. So it wasn't really like them to issue these fines, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people, especially the players, were very surprised. It's wild thinking back on this time. You know, a lot of players and teams responded with media blackouts. I was covering the Washington Mystics at that time, and I remember walking into their locker room after a bad loss, and the players would only talk about police brutality against the Black community. That's all they would talk about. And remember, this was all a couple of months before Colin Kaepernick took a knee. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, people forget that the WNBA was doing this before anyone. Ultimately, the league did rescind the fines, and 
Then President Lisa Borders admitted her mistake, but honestly, it was a week that changed the WNBA forever. I'll never, ever forget walking into that locker room and talking to the players about it that day and the hurt on their voice. They felt betrayed. For the players who were in the league at the time who are still playing, I don't know that they have truly gotten past that, you know? You can forgive, but you don't forget, right? And I think for some of them, that's where they are, understandably so. After that tumultuous 2016 season, Tamika Catchings, who had been the president of the Players Association since 2004, retired. So it was time to look for a new player to lead the union forward into a new era. It's NECA time! Yes! Agwumake on the steal. The feed inside to NECA, yes! It's good! NECA Agwumake puts it on! I'm NECA Agwumake, forward for the Los Angeles Sparks and president of the WNBPA. Believe it or not, Jordan, as synonymous as NECA is with the union right now, this was not a job that she sought out. She was not dreaming of being president of the union. But she had been on the executive committee, and I think all the veterans like saw her in meetings and were like, uh, you're doing this. I ended up having conversations with the, the last president, Tamika Catchings, and she talked about how she thought it would be a good idea for me to be the president. And, you know, I just kind of did it um, reluctantly, but also um, eager to know really what the role would hold. At this point, the league was still operating under that 2014 CBA, which technically lasted until 2021. But as I mentioned, there was an opt-out clause that the union could trigger at the end of the 2018 season, which would terminate the bargaining agreement at the end of 2019 instead. It was fairly obvious that we had to get out of that CBA because it was unworkable. And it just made us mad, you know, with with everything that happened or, or didn't happen in a season. And so it felt like, yeah, it's obvious we got we got to get out of this and we got to do something else. So that made it easy. What made it hard was it had never been done before. We had never triggered the opt out before. And so there was nothing in terms of, you know, that institutional knowledge or experience that we could bring to the table NECA definitely understood the weight of the decision, but was also excited about the opportunity for players to regain some control. Players had been getting increasingly frustrated over things like air travel to the point where the Las Vegas Aces canceled and forfeited a game because travel delays had been so disruptive. And also just their continued low salaries and lack of benefits. You know, I think uh, what was most at stake was, you know, where we saw this league going for the players. I don't think that there was any risk in the league no longer existing for us. You know, it's here and we wanted to dictate what that would look like for players, for fans, for organizations and what have you. And I think that what was at stake was the future. And so we we took it upon ourselves as players with the agency that we were kind of that we realized to really make a difference in where we wanted to see this league go. Unfortunately, like in previous negotiations that we've discussed, the circumstances facing the Players Association were not ideal. 
In the fall of 2018, President Lisa Borders abruptly left the WNBA to become president of the Time's Up movement. So there was no WNBA president or commissioner. And it was yet another negotiation time with one of the league's lead franchises in peril as James Dolan had the Liberty up for sale and had essentially moved them to playing in a rec center in Westchester, New York, that seated about 1500 people because he didn't want them to play at Madison Square Garden anymore. You guys can't see my eye rolls, but I rolled my eyes 20 times. <laughs> you really just can't have a, any basketball story without James Dolan kind of coming in to ruin things. But nevertheless, on November 1st, 2018, NECA Gumake announced that the Players Association was opting out of the collective bargaining agreement in a now famously titled piece in the Players' Tribune, Bet on Women. Terry recalled that just like days later, the NBA announced it was offering $125,000 G League contracts to elite high school prospects who wanted to skip college and go straight to the professional league. That was at the time $3,000 higher than the max WNBA salary. And I, you know, the emoji where the head is, you know, blown off, that that was all of us, right? We thought, that is a slap in the face. Are you kidding me? That really lit a fire underneath them. So what this time, you know, made it different? Because we've heard in the past, they've gotten hung up off of certain things. What was it this time around that that they were negotiating? Well, it's interesting and honestly, it's a little depressing um, because a lot of the priorities that Terry laid out sounded like the ones that Coquise and Pamela had before them and were focused on. You know, they still wanted higher salaries. They still want better travel accommodations, just kind of more investment period. In particular, Terry really went on about how much the pregnancy policy had bothered her. The fact that a player would get 50% of her, like that would be the maternity benefit, that she would get 50% of her contract. That was so offensive. I like, I it scrambled the brain. And I've said this a few times too, Lindsay, imagine, just imagine how many players we lost. I would say that, you know, while the priorities are similar, what ultimately felt different this time was Terry's commitment to finding a way to really like shake up this business model and come at this from a different direction. And then there's also the thoroughness of Neka Ogumake. Neka said, Terry, everybody has to read the CBA. And I'm like, uh, yeah, but how do I do that? She's like, I don't know. Figure it out. Everything in the CBA, it affects the players. It affects each one of us. And so to not be comprehensive about our understanding of our rights, our values, and our resources is not just selling ourselves short, but it's selling the future of the league short. So we had a pretty informed player body, player membership. And NECA said, everybody on the executive committee, of course, is, is part of the negotiating team. But she said, we need a CBA committee that is going to truly be reflective of who we are, 
across these teams, like all the players. And as diverse as we are, we need to make sure players who come, who are international players, players who are are moms, who are parents, younger players, players who are older, maybe soon retiring. We need everybody represented. So all the player reps, we have two player reps per team. All the player reps were part of the collective bargaining agreement. Then NECA said, anybody else who has an interest in being a part of this. And so there were another like five to seven of those players. So we had 31 plus seven, like 38, 40 people on this CBA committee. Huge group. There are only 144 players in the W. That's like 30% on the CBA committee. It's unreal. I just like. Can you imagine? I can't imagine it, but I also can because it's the W and of course they are doing something that no one else has ever done. Also, it's only 144 players. They want this union and the CBA to represent everybody. So why not have 30 percent, almost everybody on it and reading it? I'm here for it. That's true. I just had a lot of fun thinking about like the NBA getting 30 percent of its players. (laughs) (laughs) On a CBA committee. (laughs) LOL. Trying to imagine that many people like it's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Like that's a lot of opinions. So it's wild almost to have NECA welcome that and to say like, come one, come all. I want more of this chaos. But in other way, it's cool for her to say, I want your input like you are a part of this. And that's that's really cool. Yeah, I think, though, as someone who's been through a collective bargaining process before at previous workplaces, and I think you have too, Jordan, like, yes, I, my uh, committee was much smaller than that. And it was still chaos. So <laughs> it's just it's so much. But you're right. NECA really embraced it and had the ability, along with Terry, to really organize it and keep everybody on task. And of course, I mean, we talked about this with the 1999 negotiations, but they're all over the world trying to make this bargaining process happen. And, you know, Zoom makes it a little bit easier. Of course, there's no no conference call dialing needed, but it's still just a lot. And I think it's really crucial that we remember and just think about how much work went into organizing all of this. Because hearing Terry and Neca talk about it, I was exhausted. We had 70, over 70 original proposals, Lindsay. 70, over 70. This is before the counter. This is all the things that we had written up that said, we said, this is where we want to see change. And I remember my team saying, okay, so they had been in negotiations before. And they said, okay, so what are the priorities? And I said, what do you mean? They're like, okay, well, we've got this big list of, of proposals. What are we moving on first? And we had just gotten off the phone with the players. And I said, you heard them. You just heard them. We're moving on everything. You really can't say they're not ambitious. Yes, we're getting stuff done. But really, I think the reason that they were so meticulous and why they really wanted to get so many perspectives involved, not only is it just the right thing to do, but you know, they really felt the weight of the work that they were doing. It was bigger than themselves. You know, honestly, I think that the hardest part of negotiating might have been thinking of things from scratch. You know, we kind of had to, we had to implement some things in this collective bargaining agreement that has never been written in it before. And the weight of that on the impact of a league that is sending shockwaves in the country and around the world 
In January of 2020, with free agency fast approaching, and I know personally my nerves, I was getting anxious waiting for the deal. Yes. Oh, my gosh. We all were. We were all sitting on pins and needles. We all were. But finally, live on Good Morning America, the normal place for WNBA announcements, <laughs> the new WNBA commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, and NECA announced that they had reached a new agreement. Looking forward to sharing this with you all morning long. Breaking news right here on GMA, which will change the face of women's team sports. Here to announce the big news are WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert. The salary cap, which is how much the teams are collectively allowed to spend, it rose significantly from $1 million to $1.3 million. The salaries in general just rose for the players. The maximum salary, which is the most a player is allowed to be paid, almost doubled. It went up almost $100,000 to $215,000 per year. Now, for the first time ever, the average WNBA salary is in the six figures. So a lot of other ways outside of their salary for players to work with the league and work with their teams to earn more money to the point that top players could possibly earn more than $500,000 annually. In total, there's like a 50% increase in compensation included in this CBA. So this CBA was obviously such a huge deal and sounds like the end of the story, but then there's a coda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. COVID. Breaking news here on CBS Sports HQ, and it is monster news. The NBA has suspended the season. After a COVID coda. Because like, you know, a month after they unveil this historic new deal, the whole sports world shuts down and they have no clue what sports, what anything is going to look like. And all of a sudden, the Players Association and the WNBA are back at the bargaining table trying to figure out what a 2020 pandemic season might look like. Terry asked us and the players what was important, and it was pay and protest. Those were the two things that were very important for us. The players said, whatever you renegotiate, you are not authorized to sign unless it has a provision in there. It, like there ha- needs to be in writing language that this is a season dedicated to social justice and that the league and the union will work together to support us, to support the players in what their, those social justice causes would be. You know, there were two moments in the wobble that I think really even stood out above the rest of all the amazing things they did. The first was, do you remember what happened after then Atlanta Dream co-owner and Republican Senator Kelly Leffler decided to write an open letter attacking her players for supporting the Black Lives Matter movement just days before the season began? Do you remember that, Jordan? Every time I hear her name, like, actually my skin crawls. <laughs> like, it's, I'm not even joking. I, it is real cringeworthy. But yeah, I, I remember a league of women coming together and unifying against an owner in their league, which is just like, it's crazy. I don't think people really understand the magnitude of what the W did. People were saying sports can't be political. 
they were like, oh, we're actually going to wear T-shirts that shows the name of someone that is running against Kelly Loeffler in Raphael Warnock. And Jordan, as much as I champion the CBA and all they accomplished in that, I think what we saw in the Wubble last year took the WNBA's legacy and the union's legacy in particular to another level. They had Black Lives Matter on the court. They had Breonna Taylor's name on the back of every jersey. But more than that, they had weekly calls with members of the Say Her Name campaign. Every week, they elevated a story of a Black woman who had died in the custody of law enforcement. And it was, you saw a lot of surface activism last year, a lot of virtue signaling. And some could say that, you know, Black Lives Matter on a court, that that's what that was. But there was so much substance to what they were doing. What do you remember? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, because I was on one of those calls where they were with the founders and some of the moms from the Say Her Name campaign. And it was members from the WNBPA and WNBA players. And that was not only a breathtaking experience from the conversation of the mothers that lost their daughters, but it made me realize that the WNBA is for real. Like they are not for showmanship or just for show. These are causes that they truly, truly believe in. And this is ingrained in their league. I know we've kind of gone all over the map in Players Association history, but what I found so striking when reporting this piece was how these threads of collective action and of solidarity and of organizing tie together. I mean, if we just look at what happened during the wobble and the activism on display there. As we mentioned, that took so much organizing. Organizing that really started in 2016 after the players responded to the fines for wearing the Black Lives Matter shirts. I think that that was kind of our earliest um, ex- example and experience of the players um, linking arms and doing everything together. There, was, there were no factions, there were no teams. We were all one union, we were all one league. We don't have the CBA that we have right now without 2016 happening. We don't have the Wubble season without 2016 happening, absolutely. It was a rallying point for the players. It was their first demonstration of, of showing that they were ready to take this union to the next level, 2016. And then, of course, when you look at what happened in 2016, none of that would have been possible without the fact that the union was already there. When I was talking to Coquise, I just could not stop thinking about her watching what was happening in the Wubble last year. And I think that first collective bargaining agreement, what it did was show that we can have a voice and we can create change. And that's been the legacy that the WNBA Players Association has shown over the years, that we can be a voice, a strong voice, and a voice for change. And it kind of encapsulated last year in the bubble. It was awesome to see that. There's still so much work to do, right, with the union. This None of this is perfect. But all of this creative work, all of this activism, all of this changing the business plan and coming at things from new directions, 
that we've seen NECA and Terry and the rest of the Players Association do, all of that is ultimately only possible because the foundation was already there and that foundation started back in 1999. Thank you so much for sharing this story, Lindsay. It's so important and we here at Spinsters appreciate you. The feeling is mutual. That's our show. Please tell us how much you love the WNBA. That's all we're asking for in our voicemail this week at 502-874-4453 or send us an email at spinsters at bluewirepods.com to be featured on the show. This episode of Spinsters was written and reported by Lindsay Gibbs and hosted by Jordan Liggins and me. Our editors are the incredible Cody Nelson and Isabel Jocelyn with production by Harry Krinsky, Alex Ward, Isabel, and Jordan. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Niels, and me. Hey, Spencers. This is John from Seattle. Um, I was thinking about that question you raised at the top of the last episode about a player who you keep wanting to get better who isn't and the first person I thought of was Jordan Canada on the storm she's our like backup point guard basically to Sue Bird and I think the plan for years has been for her to sort of like take over Sue's spot when she retires or you know as Sue gets older for her to kind of like take up the mantle I just really want her to thrive and succeed and you know keep improving so that's who I thought of